You are listening to Friends of Europe's podcast. Don't miss our debates on global and European issues that span political, economic, social and environmental challenges and follow our website at friendsofeurope.org. So welcome back. As I said, please take your seats. There's plenty of room in front for people who are still standing at the back, unless you want to do that. So uh, we're starting now our second panel, which is about uh, will EU-ASEAN relations still matter in 40 years? And I see this panel as really moving on seamlessly, very smoothly from what we discussed in the first panel, because there is a lot of overlap, obviously, on, on these issues. And we saw in the first panel that we agree on many, many things, EU and ASEAN, but we also disagree on many, many things. We do things differently. Uh, we do things in a different way because we are different animals, different beasts, as it were. So let's uh, continue now into the second panel. And as I said before to all our panelists, short and snappy, and the plea to all of you also, in order to make this as interactive as possible, is to ask your questions or make your comments uh, as short uh, and snappy as possible so we have real interaction. It's not me being bossy. It's me trying to be, uh, encourage you to have an interactive conversation where we actually talk talk to each other, okay? Right, so I'm gonna uh, introduce the panelists very, very briefly. Uh, nobody needs an introduction to Reinhard Butikofer, a major personality, political personality here in, in uh, Brussels, in the EU. He's member of the European Parliament and rapporteur on EU-ASEAN relations. Uh, the European Parliament has brought out a, a report on EU-ASEAN relations, which I think should be compulsory reading for all of us interested in this issue. Also, the great pleasure of having with us Sutad Sedbun Sarang, member of the board of the Bank of Thailand. And Sutad, it's really a pleasure to have you here. You've got your finger in the ASEAN economic pie, as it were. And that's one side of the story we haven't really explored further. No one needs an introduction either to my great friend Lei Wee, Lewi Yo, Director of the National University of Singapore, Director of the EU Centre in Singapore, and also someone who's been watching and writing and commenting on ASEAN relations for over three decades or so. And last but not least, a great pleasure to have with us Anika Sirak. She is one of the young leaders, uh, EU ASEAN young leaders, and I'm really, really happy, Anika, that you're uh, with us because you can bring us the story from the young people. You're their ambassador <laughs> to this uh, panel, if you like. I'm gonna kick off very, very quickly now with uh, you, Reinhard. Um, very simple question. Do you really think this relationship, given all the challenges we face here in Europe, there in ASEAN, but also in our mutual conversation, do you think they, this will be there in 40 years or so? Will we be celebrating in another 40 years? Not us personally, some of you I hope, uh, but uh, will we be celebrating this? Well, first of all, let me thank you, Shada, for having me again. Your simple questions are as famous as they are feared. Um, my great opportunity is that 40 years from now, I'm probably not going to be around, so you cannot hold me into account <laughs> if I get it wrong. But, but I would say there are a couple of reasons uh, that should make us very optimistic. We have um, shared interests. That has been, I think, explored already to some depth in the first panel. We have shared values, and even though we may have quarrels also about some of the values, we share quite a few. And more than the shared interests and the short values, I think 
the shared challenges do count that either of us cannot deal with uh, without taking the opportunity of looking for plus uh, positive cooperation, win-win as some say, even though in this case it would mean that both sides should be winning. Um, and then there is, of course, another factor that has been mentioned by our Chinese colleague who said that China is interested in facilitating this cooperation. I think I can truly say to you, you should not be contrite. You are facilitating this cooperation to a level that you might not be aware of. And um, of course, having said that, we still um, can do better or worse. And uh, one of the um, things that I would advocate that we should try to avoid would be the stale um, institutional concerns like, is Europe invited as a full member to the East Asia Summit? I mean, at some point, I'm sure that will happen over the next 40 years, but I couldn't care less which year it would be because that's not the, the core content of this relationship. The core content of this relationship is whether we can be useful to each other. And if that happens, I think everything else follows and falls in place. Uh, for instance, one issue that uh, we should invest into both, uh, from both sides is connectivity. Obviously, this is a major concern. This is a concern that Europe may not have been looking into as much as we should have. Now we're being confronted with this urgency. And I think we have uh, a common, we, we, we can share a common understanding that connectivity, if it should be really liberating to the participants, has to be a kind of connectivity that is open and balanced and gives everybody the same kind of opportunity. Um, that a connectivity that is not one-sided, a connectivity that is not created according to the hop and spokes paradigm, but that is a multilaterally governed connectivity. And there I see both sides um, being educated by some of the Chinese policies to learn better where our own interests lie. Right, and if you were to have that crystal ball, uh, would you say that the, the core issues to be discussed are related to connectivity, or do they have to do more with the shared values uh, that, that you spoke, spoke about? Well, you, you, you could try to define connectivity narrowly in a merely technical sense. I don't think that would make a lot of sense. Uh, from my point of view, connectivity is also connecting people, right. not just connecting investment or connecting roads or connecting uh, economic factors, connecting people, connecting ideas. And in that sense, all our values and all our ambitions and our visions come into play. Right. Thank you very much. It's very important to have that people-to-people -people connection that we talk about, but in reality, not just on, on paper that we uh, talk about often. Let me turn now to Sutad. Uh, Sutad, we talked this morning a lot about the geopolitics 
of the region, the changing geopolitical dynamics, but there's also geoeconomic transformations taking place across your very, very, very diverse and dynamic region. Uh, tell us a little bit about that. Uh, let me three, make three points quickly uh, at this juncture. I think the first one is we, uh, we have a discussion on the digital transformation, but actually the world is undergoing three other major changes at the same time. There's a big change in the energy sectors, a big change in the, uh, in the biotechnology, the agricultural sectors. You look back at our civilization, any of these changes actually cause a major transformation in the global economy. Uh, so I think what we have to really start focusing from now on is to look at this future that are upon us now. What we need to do actually is not only to follow this technology, but we have to really look at what actually we want to be in this new technology. Where do we want to go? It requires a very, very different mindset when we have this uh, digital era upon us with a new set of energy. The car that we see running in front of us uh, here will probably be changing. Uh, all the uh, transformation that are taking place during the industrialization will be 10 times more because we are under a very big transition in the global economy. It requires the first thing that we have to change here is our mindset to look at this issue going forward. We still are analyzing the issue using geographical uh, uh, locations, which I think five or 10 years from now, it may not be all that relevant. The second issue that I'd like to, to, to touch upon is this, I'll call it uh, the geoeconomic transition. In the next five years, according to the World Bank, uh, to IMF forecast, 45% of the growth, economic growth in this world will be coming from Asia. Sorry, 40, 37 from Asia. 25% will coming from Northeast Asia, Japan, Korea, China, Hong Kong, Taiwan. The rest of the world, EU will contribute about 16, 17%, US 17%. So this is a transition that is taking place upon us. Asia is integrating very, very quickly. Uh, China is looking uh, toward the uh, Belt Road Initiative to connect themselves to the Western part. India is looking east. So ASEAN is right at the center of these two very big engine of growth going forward. Now what can they do? In fact, a lot of integration, uh, physical integration is taking place. Uh, the uh, rail are being built now, uh, connecting all the way down from uh, Singapore, uh, uh, from Kunming to Singapore and so forth, right? Now this integration is unavoidable, it's taking place anyway. So we have to really take this as given uh, because we are basically talking about a huge amount of uh, people that are involved in uh, that benefit from this. ASEAN has for many years created this ASEAN economic community which was realized in 2015 why are we doing it? The ASEAN economic community is a platform for ASEAN to engage other countries. Intra-ASEAN trade, not like the EU, is only 25%. 75% of our trade is external to us. 
So when we do a cooperation, it is not like when the EU doing cooperation, try to increase interregional trade. But our target is all abroad. So ASEAN economic community is very outward focused. Okay? So this connectivity and this transformation that are taking place, ASEAN has already been preparing to capture the benefit. ASEAN have five FTAs with Japan, Korea, China, India, uh, Australia, and New Zealand together. Now they try to compress this into the ASEAN uh, Comprehensive Economic uh, Partnership. There are some difficulty, but nonetheless, we have five other FTA to fall on in order to pursue this future that is actually upon us at the moment. So that's uh, the second point I'd like to make. And we invite, actually, uh, last session that we were talking about ASEAN. ASEAN is a very open forum. We invite all others to come and join us. Because to capture the 75%, we are not going to do that alone. We have to really partner with you. So please, welcome uh, EU. We, I actually, in that, I support the, uh, the ASEAN uh, EU FTA and all the other FTA that will be designed to basically bring us to this future of uh, prosperity together. The third point I'd like to make is on the population change. Now, this sounds very tame because we know that population is increasing. But there are a few things that we have to realize. Number one is population in the next five years is going to increase by about 437 million people, one EU. EU is about 444 million people. So in the next five years, global, global population growth will be the size of another EU. Okay, 25% uh, of this come from South Asia, which is uh, India, Bangladesh, Pakistan. Operation is going very fast. China, the Northeast Asia as a group, is growing at only 41 million people. South Asia, 120 million people. So it's four times more in South Asia. Now, this caused a difference in the size of labor force going forward, right? Ten years from now, this will become a new phenomenon. There will be a lot of migration unless, unless there are enough investment going into South Asia to really make the people there more productive so they can stay put in the location. This means we need more investment. We need more infrastructure to build this. This is an effort, uh, a work that no country, no region can do alone. We have to do this together, or else there'll be a lot of unwanted migration. We talk about Rohingya. Rohingya is about one million people, and it's part and parcel of this big picture I'm painting, where South Asia population growth is enormous. And I think there are, in terms of ASEAN and, and EU going forward, or in from outside each other, we call ASEAN-EU cooperation. Uh, here we call EU-ASEAN cooperation. <laughs> to me, it's a tongue-twisting effort. But uh, we actually feel that we have to define what we should actually work together, the mm -hmm. common objective. There's so many things that we need to do, but we really have to prioritize. Every country has their own priorities. Every region has their own priorities. But we, as a as two regions, 
EU and ASEAN, we have to find out where are the interests of this common interest upon us, as Reinhardt has just mentioned, and then focus on it. Mm -hmm. We are actually very broad in our cooperation. Look at the statement, it covers everything. It may be said in many different ways, but I think the subject is right. all the same. Yeah. That's why in the previous session, we were not going to look at the statement that are coming out again, because in <laughs> I'm also from the private sectors. Um, we do, do not really look at what come out in a <laughs> statement, but <laughs> we want to know. So that's true. We want to know actually what are you doing. And can going I ask forward, you to, can I ask just, you to just, just one closing remark. Thank you. Going forward, I think the government has done enough. I think it is the role of now the private sector mm. and the civil society that have to take this going forward. The major constraint in bringing us forward is the government, because the government are not fast enough, change fast enough to really accommodate this to the rules and regulation that we have which actually nurture us up to this moment may not be actually appropriate for us going forward into the future. Mm -hmm. But it is very difficult to change law. That's why, in fact, less developed countries or developing emerging economy has much, much better chance in capture the benefit of this impending change because they are small, more agile, faster to change. Rules are not very much set yet. So there's a lot of opportunity going forward for EU and ASEAN. But we have to really change our mindset. We no longer have enemies. We only have friends to work together in the future. If we start by naming somebody our enemy, how can you forge a good relation going forward? So we have to change that particular mindset, take away the territory, take away all these uh, so-called traditional security type of construct, the national sovereignty and so forth, right. and look for a brighter future together. Thank you very much. Thank you, Sudhat. Uh, I was just pressing you on, but I could have listened to you uh, for uh, at least another two hours. Thank you so much indeed, and I, I, we will come back to you. Um, thank you for also bringing in the private sector, which we didn't talk about, obviously, in the first session. And another area where Europe and uh, ASEAN can work is on regulation and FTAs are a way of uh, opening up certain sectors that are, are shut. So I think that's a very important point to raise. And I'm really glad, I have to say, that you talked about India because sometimes I say in my ABC, B could be Bharat, which is the uh, Hindu, Hindi way of saying India because right. India is an important player in the region and, and we tend to underestimate its, uh, its role and influence. Thank you so much for that. We'll come back to many of the issues you've raised with that. Let me turn now to uh, Lewi. Lewi, also, you know, you said to me when we were having tea, yes, I see the next 40 years, but there are many conditions that need to be met before we get there. So come on, from your point of view, your experience, wh what are these conditions? What's happening? Uh, thank you, Shada, for inviting me, and uh, good morning to all. I think this question, will EU-ASEAN relations still matter in 40 years? I think it depends really on what kind of world uh, we will be living in 40 years from now, right? Mm -hmm. What kind of world? Is it a world still of nation states, a world of geography, as, or are we out of the geographical mindset as Sudap has mentioned? We should get out of this, uh, you know, confined by our geography, you know, the mindset that is confined 
by where we come from and all that. So it depends on what kind of world uh, we're going to be in 40 years from now. Then we can say, would this relationship still uh, matter or still important? But then before we get there, we, I think we need to also say, what the world is going to be like 40 years from now depends on what we do today hmm. and tomorrow and the next year. And especially a call to the young people. And I think you need really, the future is for us to shape, right? Events change the way we react, how we respond to it, what we do is going to determine what the future is going to like. We cannot predict. There's no future that you can see there. You have to write it yourself. You have to work on it. And I think that's important uh, for us to bear in mind. Now, what kind of future we want uh, to, to have? I think then, I think there are three broad issues we have to bring ourselves uh, to think about. Sudeb already talked about this. Do not let this geography confine our... And I would say, similarly, we should, first of all, reject the kind of binary choice that's always often put towards us, particularly by the Americans. Either you're with us or against us. You have to choose between us or China or something. So I think we need to get rid, first of all, of this binary, uh, to think that we only have two choices. There are much more choices in life than we have. So get rid of the binary uh, mindset, first thing. Second, we need to also move away uh, from what the idea of hegemony. I think in many ways, our current IR is still based on this realist framework of a hegemonic uh, or world order, you know, a Western-led or something. So move away from the idea of hegemony to harmony. Uh, from this hierarchical order to one that is a truly multilateral order. And I think that's where us EU, at least in many ways, try, not always succeeding because I think EU sometimes also pick and choose. I think we always say that China and the US, but I think in some way when you have the power, you do uh, tend to we must really look into what we mean by a truly multilateral uh, world order that we want to work towards. So get away from this hegemony to try and seek harmony. And how do you seek this kind of harmony rather than hegemony? I think, again, we need to transform ourselves through dialogue and communication. We talk a lot about dialogue, but in reality, we are not very good listeners. We like to listen to what we want and quickly react to what people say, right? So we don't actually have a true dialogue and, and real communication. So we really, and through that, transform our own mindset, transform ourselves. Let me tell a very personal uh, story to see how uh, things can be transformed if you are really into, so we look at challenge sometimes and we, the first thing we want to do is to, uh, when someone challenges us is to react and to challenge him back, right? In that sense. But the way to handle challenge is to say, what can we learn from the experience? From what are the learning experiences from trying to manage the challenge? I'm married to a European, right? Uh, he's an architect, I'm a social science. So I, I like to say that, you know, he built the real bridges. I try to build psychological bridges between <laughs> Asia and Europe. And, um, but I, I noticed in, my, in, my, in our journey together, we have been married 20 years now. The 20 years of the marriage, the Yolehui of 20 years ago is the different Yolehui of now, right? Because we inform, we transform each other through our differences, and we are lots of differences. We, we are still arguing over sometimes over certain values and all that kind of stuff. So I remember when we first, uh, in our first one or two years together, 
and being young, you tend to be uh, a bit more uh, uh, fighting spirit, right? So you, when sometimes uh, being a European, he would ask me, oh, so have you read this classic, say, just to quote maybe, Crime and Punishment? And, and then I said, no, I have not read it. And then in a very condescending manner, when we say Europeans tend to like to preach, he said, my goodness, you haven't read that book? <laughs> in that kind of tone, right? And then I would be angry. I would say, but have you read the dream, uh, uh, the, the dreams of the, uh, the red chamber, the dreams of the red chamber, the Hong Long Mo, which is a Chinese classic. And I'm sure he hasn't read it, right? So that's the way to, you, you, you react that way. But the reality is, if later on I learn not to react because I become mature, self-confident. So the way to deal with, okay, what is this book about? Can you tell me, what did you, why is this book so great that I have to read it? So this is maturity, confidence. If you don't have the confidence, self-confidence, you will take uh, uh, umbrage with everything. You need to respond in the way that shut up or, you know, uh, uh, <laughs> that's not the way to do the real. When you are confident, self-confidence, you enter into real dialogue. And through the process, you transform yourself, you learn new things. Right. And I think that is the way that we should look at EU-ASEAN relationship, hmm. to learn from each other, right? And to, in the process, we transform each other. Don't believe that we shouldn't change, that our values are the best and we will never... You will have to evolve as a person, as an organization. Right. And I think that is, to me, uh, uh, what uh, uh, is important that we should have. So I just stopped there. This is just... Uh, we can continue the dialogue. Thank you. Thank you to the four, uh, to the three panelists so far. I'm going to come to you in a minute, Anika. I think you've brought the, all three of you so far have brought our discussion to a higher level, and I really appreciate that. Uh, you know, uh, Reinhardt talked about connectivity as an empowering mechanism and something that empowers people. Uh, Sudat talked about we have no more enemies. I think these are, these are important issues to bring to the table when we're talking hard power, geopolitics. Um, very important. And Lewi, uh, obviously, the, the need to transform each other and crucial point, binary choices, you know, that are being thrust down our throats on a daily basis by almost everyone around here. Anika, what are, what are the, your uh, idea, ideas and I was going to say idealistic view of this relationship? What have you young leaders uh, been talking about for the last day and a half, I think? Thank you very much, and uh, thank you. Uh, I'm very honored to be part of this uh, this panel. Um, I think in, I'm not sure about the others, but in 40 years, I will still be here. I uh, hope so. <laughs> so uh, I do have a, have a stake in, in, in which direction this uh, relationship evolves in future. Um, as I am the voice of the U.S. and uh, young leaders who met uh, yesterday to exchange views and uh, to put together recommendations for, uh, for policymakers, I can say with confidence that the future of EU-ASEAN relations is in good hands. Um, all these brilliant young people are genuinely interested mm -hmm. in uh, furthering this cooperation between uh, two most advanced regional integration processes in the world. And uh, this is not just a catchy phrase for diplomats to use in speeches. It is the reality that we often seem to, seem to forget or, or seem to undervalue. EU-ASEAN economic cooperation is not just about negotiating FTA agreement um, or, or business to business contacts or, or investments. It's also about building a truly integrated ASEAN economic community 
And uh, in doing that, there is no other dialogue partner whose mistakes, whose experiences, whose know-how ASEAN could learn from than the EU is. The EU has experience in building a single market, has experience in um, internationalizing higher education, and uh, we have experience in harmonizing legal frameworks across uh, nation states. And, uh, and um, EU support to ASEAN connectivity in, in these areas and beyond is highly appreciated in ASEAN, at the ASEAN Secretariat and, and in the region beyond. But it is very often forgotten or simply not acknowledged in, in Europe. And that is partly because the majority of public diplomacy efforts in communicating what EU and ASEAN are doing together is targeted at the ASEAN region. But we also need better communication in Europe. Um, my friends, and I know that um, many of our young leaders can relate to this, uh, our friends do not know what ASEAN is, let alone what the EU is doing with it. So um, I would, um, but the interest is there. Um, young people wish to be engaged, they wish to understand better, and they wish to be involved in, in policy making. Their, their voice must be heard. Um, if such young leaders forums as we had yesterday, and, um, and I need to thank Mr. Butikofer for, uh, for the initiative of bringing this, this up and, and uh, for the EIS colleagues for making this happen. Um, if such forums were institutionalized, regular formats where the, the leaders of tomorrow could provide recommendations for the policymakers of today, it would be a great step for, uh, forward, um, not only engaging the youth, but also in making the two regional integration organizations more people-centered. And uh, we've seen this point being raised many, on many occasions today, um, not only in relation to low awareness, uh, but also in being too far from, from the people. Um, young leaders have made real tangible recommendations yesterday. Um, in the interest of time, I would just highlight uh, two of them uh, where, where the two regions could really be more successful in working together than, than alone. Um, and these are um, negotiating and concluding the free trade agreement between the two regions and being more ambitious uh, in the implementation of the Paris Agreement. Um, being the two, two uh, players in the world still committed to uh, multilateralism, to rules-based international organization, this is something that, um, that we should take the lead on and show the lead on in future. Right. Young people want to see sustainable economic development. And I emphasize the word sustainable because they often link and they see these two things as interlinked. Sustainable development can be a path towards greater economic growth and, um, and it must not be treated as something separate or, or substitutory to it. Um, so if I would just have two takeaways from, from my intervention, I would say um, more um, institutionalized forums between young people of both regions to engage and better communication in both regions beyond the usual suspects, beyond uh, the stakeholders, beyond the political elite to really reach the people. Thank you. Thank you, Anika. <laughs>
So Reinhard, really, you did start something very, very valuable, I think. And uh, what you were saying about young people and their interest in ASEAN, I started teaching at the College of Europe in Natalin, and one of my lectures was on EU ASEAN. And now the, uh, the young students, uh, the master students actually, are going to be writing a lot about ASEAN. And I thought that was very interesting. They weren't interested before, they didn't really know about it, but having heard the story, from me, uh, they are enthusiastic. One a personal question for you, though, Anika. Mm -hmm. um, Lewi said, you know, meeting each other transforms uh, each other. We transform each other. We're never the same again. After your meeting for the last, what is it, 24 hours or so with oh, yeah. your ASEAN colleagues and others, do you feel changed, transformed, understand each other better? <laughs> You need 20 years, says Lewi. <laughs> okay. Yes, you're right. Fair enough. Um, <laughs> thank you, thank you. Um, I think one day is not enough to be truly, <laughs> truly transformed. But I do agree that there is ground for becoming transformed. Um, and, uh, and I think it's really valuable for, uh, for, for us to engage, even if it's just for, for one day. Um, so I really appreciate it. <laughs> But I think this is going to continue. And thank you also about talking about better communication. That's very important. Okay, you've been listening patiently and with great interest. Let me open the floor. We've got about 25 minutes for Q&A. Once again, uh, you know that I can be a bit bossy, but so be, please be short and snappy. As I said, it's to get a conversation going. So please put up your hands. We have the roving microphone. I haven't absolutely <laughs> terrorized you, have I? No. I mean, <laughs> so please, that's not my intention. Yes, sir, please, at the back. Can someone uh, take a microphone to our friend at the back? Somebody, please? I can yell. Yeah. No, because we need, uh, we're recording and we need, uh, we need that. Please think of questions as well from the others. Thank you. Yes. Thank you. Go ahead. Ah, thanks, Claude. Thanks, Amanda. Hi, thanks. Uh, John Delury. I'm an American here, thanks to the graces of the Irish. Uh, I teach in South Korea. Um, it's wonderful, so refreshing to be thinking about the next 40 years, because in Korea and in the United States, in Korea the discussion is the next 40 days. Uh, in the United States it's the next 40 minutes. And will there be a tweet or not? Yes, so. Sir. Uh, it's liberating. Um, I, I guess what I was curious about to uh, coming as kind of an outsider regionally is, I wonder if any of the panelists have thought about a role for EU and ASEAN to sort of spread this message together as you were talking. You really are the models uh, or two of the leading models of regional integration. So one way in which you could possibly cooperate is you know, to think about other parts of the world, certainly in Northeast Asia, there's a lot of constant discussion about the EU and ASEAN. So I wonder if any of you have thoughts about how you could kind of spread this message or engage other regions talking about your, your lessons together. Mm. Thank you. Thank you very much indeed. Thank you very much. Uh, gentleman over here in front, Amanda Osama, please. Thank you, hi. Um, with HSBC. I just wanted to explore uh, a little more what you said about the private sector and how the private sector can be involved in these relationships and, and in particular how we can support in terms of um, public-private partnerships but as well as financing for infrastructure and um, just if I briefly may, um, if you could touch upon um, China's influence in terms of the BRI which is the uh, Belt and Road Initiative and how that's impacting the region as well. 
Thank, Thank you. you very much. So that's uh, three questions already. Uh, anyone else? I can see where? Yes, please. Thank you very much. Jana Dreyer from uh, Borderlegs, a, a, a trade uh, publication. Um, I have a question for Mr. Butikoff. Could you explain a bit more precisely what you mean with connectivity? For me, that sound continues to sound very abstract. And to all of the panel, how realistic do you think uh, an EU ASEAN FTA is? Thank you. The which FTA? EU, EU ASEAN yeah, FTA. Yeah. Yeah, 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 absolutely. Okay, let's take those uh, three questions to start off with. Who would like to start first? Uh, Reinhard, would you like to start? Let me start by addressing the question about whether ASEAN and the EU could have a role in spreading the message of regional cooperation. To some degree, each of these regions is already standing up for this idea and, and giving an example. If we want to do that in an even more enhanced way, I think we can only do that by walking the walk of cooperation and not just talking the talk. Mm -hmm. And uh, some of this um, will have to focus, and I agree with the need to clearly define priorities. Uh, some of this will have to deal with people-to-people uh, -people exchange. Um, yes. um, because that should sit at the center mm -hmm. of all the other uh, developments. And, and there are great opportunities uh, for that. Uh, for instance, um, smart cities networks mm -hmm. yes. could much more publicly and much more visibly create fora for exchanging best practices um, between different cities in different regions dealing with similar issues, similar local issues, and, and everything that can be defined as a national policy has to be implemented as a local, local policy. Level. So that is where it all boils down to, and I think that would be great. Uh, second example, uh, I would say we don't use very much the expertise and the um, potential of expat communities. There are so many expat communities. Give you an example from uh, a different region that's very successful, Silicon Valley. Mm -hmm. uh, there are many expats from all over the world. The Indian expat community in the Silicon Valley organizes one regular India day per year where they fly into uh, San Francisco, um, major players from the civic, uh, civic sector, more importantly from the private sector, to have intercourse, to have exchange with the smart young kids that are doing all the innovation and, and uh, doing all the startups there. Uh, that is extremely useful in helping both sides. Something like that, using expat communities, could also be, uh, be made um, more, um, more of our shared, um, shared uh, experience. And then on connectivity, well, of course that's a range. It starts from the open skies negotiations that, that are going on, which I think is a, a great thing to have, and, but it goes all the way to 
um, connectivity in the sense of uh, furthering uh, exchanges between communities and, and even uh, individuals like the young leaders. So, uh, uh, of course, um, connectivity, and I, I repeat what I tried to say before, connectivity can be organized in different ways. And there is connectivity that is not just harmony. It's a setup which can only be described in the terms of harmony if mm -hmm. harmony means accepting somebody's Being hegemony. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I mean, there are definitions of harmony to that end. Uh, I don't think this is what we would all share. So uh, connectivity has to play by some fair rules to, to be um, organized according to multilateral principles and not polar polarization ideas. But can I, can I just, interesting point, I want to push you a little bit on that. So would it make sense to have international or multilateral rules, standards on uh, international connectivity blueprints? Many out there, China's not the only one. There's Japan, there's India, this Turkey, would it make sense yes, to do it, that? It would. Uh, I'll give you a practical example. Uh, on the basis of uh, China's OBOR uh, ideas, mm -hmm. there is cooperations being organized and being negotiated between different countries that pertain to this broad region. On what basis will we cooperate between industry in the private sector mm -hmm. as regards industrial standards. Will we apply the international standards of ISO or will we enforce national standards that make some nations dependent on others? Mm -hmm. That's a very simple example where I think the difference is very clear. Right, and just, just for everyone to know, within ASEM uh, there is this uh, work going on on drawing up a sustainable in air connectivity index which I think is going to be quite a useful exercise um, as well. Okay, Sudat. Yes, I'd like to support Reinhardt in, uh, you know, the, we have to lead by example, not just by talk. Certainly we have to show that ASEAN and EU can really work on something that are very tangible together. Um, the private sector deal is like this. We need the private sector, not because, uh, mainly because the government cannot really cope up with all these changes going forward. There's not enough capacity in the government to really grow servicing all these uh, activities. I'll give the example of connectivity at the border points. You know, uh, right now in within ASEAN countries, there are many border points that are, but it's not enough, it's growing. The volume of trade is increasing enormously. But then we stick, we stuck to these old rules, custom rules and regulations, right? So we have, you bring the goods to a territory, you have to declare, export. Bring it into another <coughs> territory, same location, you have to declare import, right? So you double these activities. The government from both sides have to station a lot of people in each of these locations, right? Now what I was proposing, an idea for example, of how this can work is both government actually commission a private company to run the operation 
Legally, it's still, you know, there are two operations, but physically, it's only one. So this has to be done by a competent private sector operator. That's where the private sector can come in. Now, to have a seamless connectivity along the route, the, the, the Vail and Road Initiative, something like this, some initiative like this, which is actually an innovation, but it is an innovation of the institution. It's a way of doing things. The first problem you encounter is the law in most countries will not allow that to happen. Right? So that is one of the major concerns I mentioned about because the construct of rule and regulation we have right now is supporting a one model of business, which is actually no longer relevant for the future, but we're still fighting and, and to keep it. The private sector can do two things. This initiative actually should be in the hand of the private sector to really propose to the government that this is the way to do things. The old things that you have done doesn't work. Visa, also the migration uh, issues, the quarantine, the ICQ basically, right, has to be managed better in order for this connectivity to really go smoothly. Imagine right now, we are building this train, starting over in China, building the train from China all the way down to Singapore. It's now building in, in Laos. If the train takes two hours to come from China, Kunming, to Laos, and it takes two hours as a border to clear the 200 passengers, what is the benefit of the train? This issue is enormous because in trade, we experience that all the time. Mm -hmm. When I first started uh, my work at ASEAN Secretariat in, 2000, in 1993, we are doing ASEAN Free Trade Area. The first issue that we work on is on customs cooperation. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And there's no way in this world that the custom can cope up with the increasing volume of trade. They have to train so many officers to station at so many of these custom points. There's no way they can do that. So I think this is just an example of the, of the bottleneck in the government side that cannot cope up with the increase in the demand for this new way of, uh, mm -hmm. of, of trade and business, mm -hmm. okay? Sorry, it takes uh, so much time uh, on this. Now, the Bell Road Initiative, enormous opportunity for these innovative ideas. Innovative ideas, not new technology even, but just simple technology that are appropriate that Reinhardt was saying, appropriate for the occasion for, for this particular setting, right? Each border point are different, in fact. You cannot design a, a harmonious uh, custom system that cover everything. Some principle, okay, but when you come down to implementation, it is actually point by point implementation. It comes down to something very practical. So that, I think, is where the private sector can take a lot of initiative and come and participate because the government will always want to keep their power. All the right? ambassadors are nodding, yes. <laughs> <laughs> so that's a different, uh, small business oriented type of issue. I'm not talking about international relationship. I'm not an expert no, no, in that no, area, no. okay? But just imagine how can the Bill Road Initiative be realized if these are not happening? And this cannot be done only by China. Cannot be done by any single country on the route. Cannot. 
We have to do this all together. Now, that's back to this issue about whether we need, uh, you know, uh, WTO, for example, international standardization of rules. We need a framework, a thinking that provides transparency to the system. Mm -hmm. You still need that. We have to protect that. That failed, I think the whole world trade system will collapse right. because the, the national treatment, the, uh, the MFN treatment are very fundamental. But actually those two things right. attack the very foundation of what is called national sovereignty. Mm -hmm. It basically says that you have to surrender the national sovereignty to these international rules or else there's no trade. I export a product to you and you don't recognize it, right? How can that be, uh, be, be, be you know, a rule? Mm -hmm. If I want to have a trade, I have to make sure that when they export to you, you have to pay me right. the money, right? So, so that's, simple yeah. rule like that has to be a yeah. And we have to do that yeah. together. So the, the sometimes tedious concept of trade facil facilitation, uh, customs, border controls, yeah. etc., are the key to making this connectivity uh, work. Yeah. Thank, you. Thank you very much for that. Lewi, please. I'll just take on the, the question about the region-to-region -region FTA, whether it's still possible. And I think I, and it, it's good to have, but I think the approach that the EU is taking now bilaterally, in some way, I do not actually agree that it's a race to the bottom. I think it is actually uh, uh, really understanding the different priorities also of the, other, of the ASEAN member state. And actually, it can be a catalyst for reform. For instance, if you look at the EU-Vietnam FTA, there's now a lot of push to talk about the labor standard, the, where the fisheries industry is, right? So in, the, in many ways, you can see Vietnam is also responding to that in order to, to, to change, so that to raise the standard so that the FTA could be ratified. So you do see that not so much race to both, but actually by addressing the issues, the particular issues and the priorities of the member state, it actually works better. Similarly, you have an FTA now negotiations with uh, Indonesia that can be the focus on the environmental issues. And I think, of course, the palm oil thing, I'm sure, will come into the discussion and, and to try and catalyze some of the reforms. And I think uh, that should uh, actually work quite well. But of course, the sim sim symbolism of having this region-to-region -region FTA is important. And that's why I think the EU is now taking the steps that we do the bilaterals. And once you have concluded enough of that, there should be a sort of framework, uh, 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 sort of a framework, loose overarching framework agreement that can sort of pull all these things together. And in that sense, it's also very much the ASEAN approach. If you look at the ASEP concept, the Regional Comprehensive Economic Partnership, it's based a lot on the ASEAN plus one, right? So ASEAN, uh, China, ASEAN, uh, Japan and how then we put, put all these 16 different uh, FTAs together to create the regional comprehensive economic partnership. And I think that's one. The other issue I want to talk about is the multilateral, uh, the connectivity issue, right? A lot of talk about connectivity and just now in the last panel there was a discussion or a question about, uh, about the tripartite, how China can be involved in this EU-ASEAN uh, relationship and and Reinhardt talked about that it has brought us closer together. But I, I want to have a more positive way. I don't think we should look at it as though it's because of the rise and assertiveness of China. We felt so scared that we have to band together. I think that should not be the kind of mindset that we should have. But we should really think of how we can also collectively, two of us, engage China in a, in a, in a positive way. And I think one of the platforms I, I thought could be uh, further 
think about. Of course, I'm sure there are a lot of issues. I'm not saying it's easy, but you know, in the ASEM process, the Asia-Europe meeting process, China is pushing very hard for this ASEM connectivity. And I think in some way, if EU and ASEAN is willing to work together with also other partners who are willing to work, to try and say, how can we multilateralize the concept of BRI within the ASEM framework? That will benefit uh, China. That will benefit us because we want to be involved, as you said, in, in, in the process, the BRI, to, to, to say, tell China that there are certain rules that we should uh, 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 adhere to, right? So use the ASEM platform as a sort of a, uh, a way to multilateralize the BR concept, BRI concept, so that it's not just China-driven. And I think within the ASEM framework where the, the whole Eurasian landmass where the Chinese are interested, uh, we should be able to do something uh, hopefully more concrete on, on that front. Mm -hmm. uh, last point that I want to make also, I think, it, it comes from the, uh, the, the thing about bringing uh, the, the, the India into the picture, which we always uh, forget. And I think sometimes we get so caught up, right? We talk about ASEAN offering this platform for, for, uh, for, to try and uh, have US and, and, and China. We are so obsessed with this bilateral relation. Of course, it's very important. It's going to be uh, one of the most uh, thing that determines what the future. But I also think, uh, one of the bilateral relationships that ASEAN can really offer a platform uh, to, to bring is the India-China. Uh, I think that, to me, is a useful ro role that ASEAN should, uh, should, should be, to be ambitious enough uh, to, to think more seriously about offering a platform. We often use the term offering a platform in a, in a very passive way, right? A platform to bring them so that they can dialogue, they don't go out to the street to fight. That's good. But I think if you look at the digital economy now, Platform, you, you know, all the digital companies uh, tell you that we're only offering a platform. But you can see how by changing the algorithm, well, algorithms, algorithms, you can actually influence the discourse and, and, and actually make a difference. Right. And I think we should think along that kind of mindset if we want to be more ambitious, mm. right? We are not just a platform, right? Just like the digital, the Google, we're just a platform. But now you can see the, the, mm. the kind of power they have. Right. Uh, so I think we have to think a bit more creatively in that sense. Thank you very much. In fact, it's really interesting on India's Republic Day, uh, this time around in, in January, all the yeah. 10 ASEAN leaders were there, there. Uh, focusing and showcasing India's interest in really putting the Lukis policy into, into action. Thank you very much. Anika, please. Thank you. Um, I would just very briefly like to elaborate on the point that was raised about connectivity. And uh, it might really seem like a buzzword if you haven't heard of this before. And um, I remember before I was posted to the, to the EU mission to ASEAN, I had to do the same. I had to Google what connectivity is. I had not come across this word before. Um, for ASEAN, it, it's a very ASEAN word, I, I must say, but, uh, but it has, um, as, as, Butik, as Mr. Butikofer said, um, uh, it has a very wide meaning. And um, in the master plan for ASEAN connectivity, for example, it uh, spreads across five areas from uh, regulatory harmonization to uh, seamless logistics. And seamless logistics is something where, where the customs comes in and uh, where the EU comes in. The EU um, is uh, one, of the, one of the flagship projects uh, that the EU is supporting ASEAN connectivity with is, uh, is ARISE. And through ARISE and ARISE Plus, now the follow-up, um, we are supporting um, the ASEAN customs transit system. So it, it's sort of- an A. <laughs> yes. <laughs> 
So this is a really concrete example as well where, where the EU can really step in and, and help ASEAN come together and overcome these um, customs issues at the border. Right. Thank you very much. I'm going to ask one final question to the panelists, unless there's somebody who's got a burning desire to put one question now. Okay, shut window of opportunity. Uh, <laughs> Very fast. <laughs> moving. So, you know, uh, uh, I don't know who said it, but somebody said a very wise thing. He said, who reads all these declarations, these communiques that come out of summit? I, I printed them all, I have to say, wasting paper. But actually, after the first two lines, I'm like, okay, I know what's coming next. Mm -hmm. So, my question to all four of you is, uh, and a short answer is, from this long list of aspirational ambition, ambitions, etc., what is the one thing that you think will take this EU-ASEAN uh, relationship into the next 40 years? What's the one ambition that you would have? And Anika, you being, you'll be there, right, <laughs> in 40 years. What would you like to be the real focus of this relationship? One, one thing. I mentioned this before, and I would say people. 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 Better communication of the benefits of the cooperation between the two. And you mentioned declarations. I don't think it's enough to upload a family picture of a ministerial meeting, upload a joint statement next to it. Um, engagement needs to be uh, needs to start before that, and uh, people need to understand better what's going on behind these meetings and what is the benefit of these meetings, these declarations, right. these joint statements for the people themselves. Mm -hmm. Communication skills. Mm -hmm. Okay, so that. I think it, it's, uh, this declaration, they expressed the will. But we both have a common will to really work closer together. And they, uh, unfortunately, I think that there are a lot of things that they would like to do are not really follow through. Uh, so implementation. The implementation, yeah. And therefore, they have to come up with different words <laughs> for different declarations. <laughs> Different regions <laughs> say the same thing in different words. But I think if you read through them, it actually very true that we want to really work closer together for peace and prosperity of both the people in the regions. I think the will is very, is always there. And I think it's sort of the spirit of the discussion is, is there like that also. Right. The, the implementation is a huge issue because right. uh, the uh, people who, who think, the architects, they are not engineers. And the engineers doesn't have a chance to really speak. So they do not, or you can dream, you know, to build a new castle in the air. But uh, you need an engineer to ground truth this. Right? I think we right. need to really bring... Okay, so for you, uh, Sudat, it's implementation and actually doing what you say you're going to do. Uh, the will <laughs> to do it. Thank you very much. Uh, Reinhard, since a lot of what you say then turns up in, into reality, be careful what you wish for. <laughs> I would say the most important thing is um, to be described with a um, strategic thought. Whether we will indeed have more than just a binary choice in the future, all of us, depends on what we do today. It could well turn into that. And for centuries and thousands of years, that's been the preeminent parameters, binary choices. We have built an international order over the last, let's say, 70 years, bit for bit, that through 
being based on multilateralism, gave additional options beyond what Thucydides described in the Malian Dialogue. Big powers act as they will, small powers act as they must. Mm -hmm. If we cannot hold on to this multilateralism, it will, I believe, turn into just having a binary choice. Right. Mm -hmm. So if we cooperate in avoiding the binary choices, that's what we will do as a service to everybody. Mm -hmm. Very good, very good. So, Lewi. Um, well, I definitely agree that we should cooperate so that we are not forced into this kind of uh, uh, situation. And um, my hope is that we should continue to have dialogue. I know it sounds boring. I think the, the issue is I believe we still do not quite understand each other, EU and ASEAN, and the dialogue has to continue, a real dialogue uh, where it's not I'm preaching or I'm, but, but a dialogue that would that hopefully uh, transform both organizations in a process, a real that and pragmatic so small steps. I always believe that I think uh, the thing that can really is the daily grind, the daily interactions of people from, from, from Southeast Asia and from Europe uh, doing things together to make the world a little better uh, for a community somewhere. And I think in that sense, I have an idea that we should have sort of a more uh, EU and ASEAN countries doesn't have to be the whole, uh, sort of a, not a peace call, but you know, some sort of like a peace call where EU and ASEAN uh, young people work together, uh, whether to, 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 to in, in, in Laos or in Cambodia, uh, in some way to, to and, and in that process, when they work together in very concrete, specific projects, uh, learn a lot and, and, and hopefully that, that, that um, experience will also transform them. Or, or people can also work together. Yes. So th thank you very much indeed. Uh, we're moving on now. Uh, there is lunch served outside. I wanted to say that I want to thank the panelists. Please join me in thanking these panelists. <laughs> I, think, I think what we've really learned today is remember when uh, Michelle Obama said, when they go low, we go high. <laughs> and I have to thank all four of you for really taking up the challenge and going high. Just a few uh, housekeeping uh, uh, issues. First of all, it's not a housekeeping issue. I really have to say thank you so much to the External Action Service for working with us on this uh, policy insight debate today. It really has been, I think, very, very fruitful and, and extremely valuable for people to people that we talk about. And then my friend and colleague, uh, Fraser Cameron, has asked me to tell you that the EU Asia Center, of which he is director, will hold a side event on uh, EU uh, ASEAN FTA uh, trade, just trade more generally. It's at the Press Club at 5 p.m. And he said, you're all welcome to go there. I think our friend Ayanna Dreyer, who asked a question here, and Sudat uh, uh, will be there as well. So uh, once again, thank you all for your contributions, for your insights, and to our panelists for making this such a success. Take care.